0: Welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH-TV. As you probably know, everyone here at ADH-TV had an absolute ball over the weekend, broadcasting the CPAC Australia Conference from Star Casino in Sydney. We hosted lots of fine speakers, including Tony Abbott, Jacinta Nampagin-Purr-Price, Elijah Schaefer, Michelle Pierce, Moira Deeming, Pauline Hanson, and a wide range of other local and international conservative commentators. Although it was broadcast for free by us here at ADH, CPAC is characteristically unfiltered and a lot of the speeches were delivered as candidly as if they were being delivered to only the 1,000 people in the room and not the tens of thousands watching for free on ADH TV. It was very refreshing to be in good company where free speech prevailed. It was a stark contrast to this moment, almost exactly 2 years ago. This was Town Hall Square on George Street, about a kilometer from Star City Casino, Sydney Star Casino, on July 24, 2021. If you look really closely, you'll see me, dressed inappropriately for a protest march right in the middle. It looks like I'm walking towards the cops, but in fact, I'm walking backwards, as is everyone else, because the mounted police had just rushed in to save one of their colleagues. Seconds earlier, me and several other protesters had formed a circle around a lone police officer who had found himself isolated in the hostile crowd, and a gang of masked Antifa-like thugs who were there to cause trouble, looked almost certain to pounce on him. Certainly the look on the cop's face confirmed that he was briefly in serious danger. There were times during that day when the mood was extremely tense. The crowd was unpredictable and the cops were understandably nervous. But the funny thing is that I wound up on the homepage of The Guardian and a bunch of other newspapers around the world looking like I was trying to incite a riot. Looks a deceptive. A Guardian journalist who I used to work with at The Australian many years ago, recognised me from the photo and called me, expecting me to be ashamed about having been at the rally, which was against the law at the time and for joining the crazy anti-vaxxers who, you know, want to kill everyone's granny because they were suspicious about experimental medicines. You're siding with big pharma against working people who are losing their jobs and businesses? I asked the Guardian journalist. My quotes didn't make it into the story. I guess I just didn't fit the Guardian's narrative. The only person on that Freedom March that day with any public profile at all at the time was John Ruddick, well known in Sydney political circles as a libertarian reformer. He tweeted a few videos on the day about how much fun it was to be on the march and I can I can confirm that it was in fact one of the most multicultural and pleasant and happy and joyous occasions I'd been to certainly since the start of the lockdown but in Sydney for years. It was, it was a really fun experience and everyone was getting on with each other. We'd come from all over Sydney just to defend our freedom. Anyway, Ruddick's tweets sparked an avalanche of hatred towards him. Former Channel 10 reporter Paul Bongiorno said Ruddick would be, quote, probably on a ventilator within a week Of course, this event was being dubbed a super spreader event and Zali Stegall, his own federal MP from the seat of Warringah, told him not to return to the electorate and advised her brainwashed supporters to quote, name, shame and fine anyone identified from the march. When these idiots test positive, they are on their own, unquote. Very nice Zali, how highly you you think of your fellow citizens. The march was the biggest public gathering since the start of the lockdown in Sydney and it was dubbed by idiotic politicians as a super spreader event. These politicians weren't just drunk on power, they were higher than Keith Richards in a Burmese opium den. New South Wales Kerry Chant, New South Wales Health uh, Minister or Health uh, Official Kerry Chant had only that week told us not to talk to our neighbours should we see them at the shops. And Health Minister Brad Hazard said COVID was, quote, the most potent virus we've had probably on earth, unquote. Bit alarming. Premier Gladys Berejiklian said, we should only leave the house if we really have to. Oh, we had to all right, Gladys. The freedoms previous generations died fighting and defending for were on the line. And as with anyone, as anyone with half a brain knew, we were safer from viruses outdoors than we were indoors which is where our overlords ironically wanted us to be. The next three weeks were pretty amusing because idiotic, idiotic journalists rocked up to those daily news conferences where the latest inflated contagion and casualty figures were being robotically delivered by Kerry Chant and asked her if any of the latest cases could be traced back to the Freedom March super spreader event. John Ruddick was watching all this from home and panicking. He thought that they'd make up a connection, that they'd connect the Freedom March to some of the latest statistics. After all, why wouldn't they? Most of the other statistics were fictional. But to their credit, Ruddick told me today they didn't. Good on them. But he did cop more than his usual, than his share of vitriol. Ruddock's kids were barred from their North Sydney primary school for two months. Strangers who got got their hands on his phone number would call him and abuse him almost daily for infecting their suburb. And of course, the cops knocked on his door and issued him with a $1,000 fine. All this, fortified Ruddick's determination to become an elected member of parliament with the Liberal Democrats, now known as the Libertarian Party, a goal he achieved at the last New South Wales, uh, New South Wales state election in March this year. Ruddick is one of the few politicians in the entire country calling for a royal commission into the COVID and vaccine lunacy Another one is Victorian Senator Ralph Babbitt of the United Australia Party, who formally proposed a COVID Royal Commission this month.
1: Now, we must not let them get away with what they did during the pandemic, the human rights abuses, the weaponisation of fear, the lockdowns, the closing of borders and obviously the inhumane vaccine mandates. Unexplained excess mortality is the elephant in the room. Cancer, diabetes, dementia, cardiovascular-related deaths, it's all spiked. Now, I have previously attempted to create a committee to investigate this, but it was voted down by almost every single senator in this place. What a shame that was. We'll never forget. Now, we call on the Labor government to honour their promise, honour the promise, establish a Royal Commission into the pandemic response immediately. You said it should happen. You previously said it should happen. You said it was the right thing to do. You promised it as soon as practicable. Let's give people answers. Establish a Royal Commission now. Let's make sure that this never happens again. Let's protect our people from gross mismanagement. Thank you Senator
0: if you ever doubted that Australia was ruled by a uniparty, check this out. This is Anne Ruston explaining why, why the previous government, the Morrison government, handled the, the COVID pandemic well.
2: The former coalition government, I believe, acted swiftly during the pandemic to ensure our health systems had the capacity to protect Australians. It's believed that over 40,000 lives were saved by that quick response.
0: It's believed, believed by who? And whoever they are, maybe they'd like to explain how they arrived at this figure in front of a Royal Commission. Of course, Rustin, uh, Rustin's uh, defence of the previous government is backed by Labor, who all voted down Babbitt's proposal, as well as the Greens. Despite things seemingly returning to normal, we've even had two CPAC conferences since we were allowed to leave our homes again last year, we would be mad to think that the uniparty politicians who conspired to lock us up last time aren't preparing to do it again. The lack of contrition and the reluctance to wind back the powers they illegitimately accrued under the false pretext of a medical emergency are proof that another lockdown is coming. The West Australian government has swept the issue under the carpet with a whitewash of a report that found the harsh border lockdown in that state reduced the number of infections and the vaccine mandates were critical in opening the border back up. Pull the other one. Not a single mention of natural immunity being better than the vaccines or that the border closures were unnecessary because the virus was relatively harmless anyway. Insultingly, this West Australian report concludes, quote, although these measures underpinned WA's positive health outcomes, the review acknowledges they did result in some individuals, families and businesses experiencing hardship. Some? about thousands. Eventually West Australians will realise just how thoroughly they were deceived during COVID and be furious that they went through all that isolation and hardship for nothing. The same will happen right across Australia. It's just a matter of whether people learn the truth by themselves or with the help of a Royal Commission. Well, there was good news for free speech last week when my colleague, Lyle Shelton, successfully defended a charge of having vilified a couple of drag queens who performed for children at the Brisbane Library in 2020. There was a time when performing as sexualized or gender-fluid characters in front of children was considered abhorrent. But these, but these are different times, and now it's not performing such acts, but criticising them that lands you in court. The two performers, Johnny Valkyrie and Dwayne Hill, who used the respective stage names Queenie and Diamond, sued Shelton for describing their performance in blog posts in January 2020 as, quote, dangerous role models for children. These posts sparked a stern threat from the performers. They said, take the blogs down, apologize, pay us compensation and never criticize us again. Well, I'm not sure what Shelton's formal responses to this and subsequent threats were, but over a period of time, they eventually boiled down to, see you in court, fellas. Not that Shelton is confrontational or lacks compassion. He is just one of the few Australians prepared to exercise free speech when he thinks it necessary. And last week, he won. The blogs, which are reasonable and in, public, in the public interest, remain published on his website, lyleshelton.com.au. I recommend you visit his website and read them. But here's the bad news. Shelton had to raise $200,000 or thereabouts to pay for lawyers to defend the case. Top Brisbane lawyer, Tony Morris Casey and the Human Rights Law Alliance, a not-for-profit law firm, both provided services for free that otherwise would have added a lot to that total. There are dozens of cases like Lyle Shelton's, as we will discuss when I talk to John Steenhoff in a minute. He's the HRLA's principal lawyer. The $200,000 that Lyle Shelton raised is not refundable. So in some ways, Shelton lost. And so did you and I. Who among us can afford to throw that kind of money At a case just to prove a point about free speech. Isn't it better to just be quiet? You're not just up against easily offended drag queens and the like, you're often up against the media, most of the entertainment industry and the government, which these days funds a wide variety of departments that provide moral, financial and legal support for people who wish to induce, introduce sexual ideas to children. Well, let's bring in John Steenhoff, the principal lawyer at the Human Rights Law Alliance to talk about what sort of cases he is fighting now, now that Shelton's has been resolved. You are going to be alarmed at what is going on and some of it is funded by you, the taxpayer. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Fred. A pleasure to be here. Now, let's start with Lyle Shelton's case. This was heard in the Queensland Civil and Administrative Tribunal after attempts to have it heard by the the state's Human Rights Commission failed. Now, John, once upon a time, if someone cast unreasonable aspersion on your character, you sued them for defamation in the District or Supreme Court. It was pretty simple back then, but things have changed a lot since then. Have they changed for the better?
2: You're right, Fred. The, the classical protection for your reputation was in an action and defamation in the courts. But we've seen an increase in the government uh, interference into this, into this area with these new kinds of laws, these hate speech laws called vilification laws, and those are the laws that Lyle was pursued under, and these say that you cannot commit a public act which incites hatred, severe contempt or ridicule for a person based on certain attributes. Are these laws good laws? Well, no one thinks that incitement is a good idea, but these laws are particularly difficult because they set such a low bar for an offence which means that they are easily used by people who want to engage in viewpoint suppression. The reason why Lyle was uh, pursued by these drag queens is because they didn't like his calling out the fact that drag queen performances introduce children to gender fluid ideas and those ideas are dangerous.
0: One of the defences for these? these, these laws, this is a new generation of laws that I would argue started with 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act back in, I think, 1996. The, the key component of all these new laws, as you describe hate laws, is, well, there's two key components. One is that they're based on offending someone and being offended is just a part of being an adult. And the other is it, they are subjective, aren't they?
2: These laws are incredibly subjective and that's one of the things to come out of this judgment was that member Jeremy Gordon, who went through a very forensic analysis of the statements that Lyle made, talked about how difficult it is to determine who is to be um, the person who is uh, incited, uh, what kinds of speech rise to the level of incitement. Now thankfully, thankfully these vilification laws don't allow you to take action for merely being offended. And in that way, they are still a higher standard than the standard in 18C of the the Racial Discrimination Act. But in every state and territory, there are law commissions, there are reviews that are going on to try to further lower the standard for these vilification laws and make it easier to take complaints and shut down speech. So it's an area where we need eternal vigilance.
0: Yeah, I remember when 18C was introduced, the uh, then federal attorney general said that the new section 18C would be, this is a frightening word, he said that section would be educative. In other words, it would teach us plebs how to behave with each other. Now, until that moment in Australian history, the standard by which we interacted with each other was a cultural one. If you were going to be homophobic or racist or whatever, you know, sexist or whatever, you know, vilification or offence you wanted to utter, then we had cultural standards that made sure that you would be ostracised for saying that. I mean, the greatest crime you can commit in in modern Australia at the moment is to be, well, homophobic or racist. Mm. I mean, we don't need laws to make that illegal because Anyone who behaves like that is a moron.
2: That's exactly right, Fred. And and what these laws do is they firstly amplify a victim narrative. So what you have is a species of person that is a cry bully. In other words, someone who identifies themselves as a victim of of speech, a victim of someone else expressing their views about the world. And they use that as a cudgel by using these vilification laws to pursue them. And that's never a good place to be in where we have people who are perpetual victims and see the rest of the world as having um, offended and insulted them and using laws uh, to pursue them. The other aspect uh, of these um, vilification laws that is really, uh, really concerning is that they tend to to really uh, silence people's speech. So People are afraid of action under these laws, and so they self-censor. Well, that's
0: the point, John, sorry to interrupt, but that's the point I was about to make. Lyle Shelton has won his case, but he's $200,000 poorer. I mean, we've lost. We've lost this battle, haven't
2: we? Well, no, a lot of that money was crowdfunded for Lyle and a victory for Lyle is actually a victory for all Australians. And this is why the Human Rights Law Alliance does what we do. We want to make sure that we're making good precedents which shape the way that these laws are interpreted. Too many times in the past, people have been self-represented in in these cases. They haven't been able to go toe-to-toe on an equal basis and push back at bad interpretations of these laws. This is a real success. We got a great interpretation of this law. And next time an activist wants to go up against someone like Lyle or another everyday Australian who says, I don't think drag queens should tell stories to kids, they're dangerous role models. They're gonna think twice. If we get a few of these victories on the trot, uh, then we really start to, to develop a fence and a defense for uh, people who want to, st- speak their mind and, and, and engage in free speech.
0: Well, congratulations to you and to Lyle in that case. Just one last point on Lyle's case. Um, am I right in saying that quite often when uh, people like yourself uh, enter court to defend people like Lyle, you find yourself up against uh, organizations or institutions that have the power
2: of the government or funding behind them, is that right? That's correct. In Lyle's case, his opponents in this case were funded, uh, well, their lawyers were funded by the Queensland Government. They received part of their funding from the Queensland Government in the LGBTI legal service, and they also had substantial support pro bono from uh, very good lawyers uh, in this area who share their ideology and their view of the world. Yeah,
0: okay. Well, congratulations again on getting that one through, and I do hope you uh, build a body of precedents uh, to allow free speech to flourish again in this country. We are not bigots. We are not defending the right of people to be bigots, but we are defending the right of a culture to decide its own standards without having to throw people in jail for uh, for not adhering to them. Now let's talk about Dr. Jareth Koch. Now he's a Victorian family doctor who has, who has had more than 15 years experience without a single complaint from a patient, but two anonymous complaints about things he once said on social media have, and this is again, more frightening stuff, pretty much ruined his life. John, what did Jareth Koch say? When did he say it? And what price has he paid?
2: So Jareth is an Australian-born Chinese GP. from Melbourne. He was 12 years in practice in suburban Melbourne, and then since suspension, which was over th- almost four years ago, he has not been able to practice medicine. Jareth uh, was an enthusiastic commenter on the Internet. He was very active on Facebook and on conservative and religious. Uh, websites, and he would make comments about a whole range of political issues, but also about his personal religious convictions on life, abortion, euthanasia, on sexuality and proper sexual moral conduct, um, at matters such as homosexuality, transgenderism, the increasing uh, uh, um, societal uh, pursuit of um, of of pleasure. Jareth was very active for a very long time and often engaged in the usual kinds of humour, satire uh, in his posts. There was someone who was engaged in conversation with him on the internet who didn't like what he had said. They saw that he was a doctor. They made an anonymous complaint to ARPRA. ARPRA is the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Authority and they administer all doctors. Their main job is to make sure that our doctors are safe, that they're properly practising according to clinical standards. Well,
0: that's the point I'd like to make. Did these posts have any bearing on his ability to to operate as a doctor?
2: The medical board who's pursuing Jareth argues that they do. They say that Jareth, as a doctor, has to uphold the standards of the profession. And they're saying that the kinds of posts that he made are such that he is not a fit and proper person to be practising medicine. In reality, what they did was that they mined 13 years of social media history, and they took out 30 to 40 posts from two and a half thousand pages of material to say these posts show a lack of proper care, proper consideration, and they paint doctors and the profession in a bad light.
0: What, in what way was he
2: so, what was so harsh about what he said, John? Oftentimes he would share memes. He would share memes, say, making fun of or criticising some aspects of LGBTQI ideology. Uh, He would make fun of transgender ideology as not being based in science, but being based in an ideology. He would share articles from conservative commentators in the United States and even in Australia about issues around same-sex marriage, around um, what is happening to our children in terms of the gender fluid influence on them.
0: You say that Arpra believes this affects his ability to practise as a doctor, do you agree?
2: We're going to be running a, an aggressive case against that because absolutely no, we do not agree. We think that APRA has taken uh, certain posts and given them a absolute hostile interpretation. Sometimes they've completely misinterpreted a post to suggest that Jareth, a Chinese-Australian, is racist or that he supports genocide. Uh, and it seems to be a giving his posts a meaning that you could only give if you were opposed to Jareth's ideas. The other issue that they're clearly upset about is that Jareth does not agree with or affirm transgender ideology. Now, Jareth has put in his uh, evidence in this case and he's looked at some of his posts and realised that he's maybe been critical of other practitioners who practise gender medicine. And of course, doctors should always show each other uh, proper consideration and respect but he's been out of a job for four years, and that's four years without even facing a trial, and that seems to be a draconian punishment for being rude on the internet.
0: Yeah, well, viewers will be familiar with the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency. They are the agency that issued a a very uh, strict order in early 2021, I think it was, saying any social media posts by any medical practitioner in Australia that doesn't adhere to the vaccine mandate orders will have their license uh, looked into. And uh, as a result, uh, most medical practitioners in Australia uh, complied and uh, people died as a result thanks to those vaccines, uh, and the vaccines didn't work. So uh, thanks for that, APRA, nice work. And uh, here they are again, uh, confusing whether or not a, uh, a person's attitude towards trans, a doctor's attitude towards transge- transgenderism, which is a highly uh, contentious aspect of modern medicine, uh, should have a right to express an opinion about that too. Now, uh, one of the few Australians uh, to realise about this, one one of the few things that Australians realise about this agency is that between 2018 and 2021, 16 doctors who were being investigated by APRA committed suicide. That's right, an investigation by this secretive body has led to 16 doctors taking their own life. And in many of these cases uh, the suicide robbed a community of a valued family doctor. Now, APRA conducted its own investigation and found, quote, practitioner reactions to the notifications process, that is an investigation by a secretive body, included feelings of shame, self-doubt, and a loss of hope seemingly with no visible pathway back to practice." Unquote. Now, John, that report was released by AHPRA back in March. Does that accurately describe what Jareth Koch is still going
2: through now? Look, uh, it's so sad to know that doctors have felt so much pressure from being under investigation that they felt they had to take their own lives. Being a medical practitioner is already an incredible an incredibly stressful job uh, to be in. JERith definitely felt the pressure of being under investigation by APRA and the incredible slow pace at which that investigation proceeded. Other factors that have uh, added to that experience is the fact that APRA often does not comply with the obligations it has to tell people that they're investigating them very early on. Instead, they will often investigate them for long periods of time and then hit them with a whole bunch of information. In Jareth's case, he was not only investigated, but he, they used immediate suspension powers to suspend him. So on a Friday afternoon, they sent him a letter saying that he had to appear less than seven days later before a committee that they were proposing to take immediate action to suspend him from the practice of medicine while they investigated him because he was a danger to the public for his social media posts. They gave him 2,500 pages of his internet history that they had uh, got uh, investigated uh, at what cost, I do not know. He had less than three working days to put in his submissions as to why he should not be suspended. And this would hit him like an avalanche. Can you imagine what you would feel like If you had that on a Friday afternoon hit you, knowing you had a week to prepare your defence.
0: Well, I can tell you um, how I would feel, John, and I'll quote APRA again. I would feel feelings of shame, self-doubt and a loss of hope. That's the quote from APRA. That's what they found these people, uh, how these people responded, these doctors responded when they discovered what, what APRA calls a notifications pro- process. In other words, a secret investigation into their, quite, quite obviously, their private opinions that have no, uh, possibly have no bearing on their ability to practice medicine. I mean, this organisation, who, who do these people answer to anyway?
2: That's the issue here is that the, the APRA, is one of those bodies that's set up under a national law that's been enacted in each of our different states. Every two to three years, there's a review by the Federal Senate into how these powers are being exercised by APRA, And every time, those who make submissions have the same recurring themes, that APRA is over-intrusive in its investigations That these investigations have an incredibly adverse effect on the doctors who are the subject of investigation, that there are long delays in the processing of these investigations. So doctors practice for very long amounts of time, if they're not suspended, uh, with a sword hanging over their head. And that's not the kind of pressure that we want our medical professionals, professionals to be under. This shows the danger of putting too much power into the hands of non-accountable, non-transparent regulatory bodies.
0: Yeah, and in a, in a lot of these cases, these are these people who these would be people, who live for their profession. I mean, you know, they've studied long and hard, and the rewards from practicing medicine, well, especially in a small community, would be enormous. And uh, to have to f- suddenly discover that some you know shady government organisation is investigating your private opinions would be utterly devastated. It's devastating. I'm not surprised that some doctors turn around and go,
2: what's the point? Well, in Jareth's case, his career has effectively been ended. The process has really been the punishment. He's not been able to practise medicine for four years. He's had to rely on the kindness of strangers and sit on uh, government benefits. He's had to retrain. He's gone completely out of medicine and into computer programming because he knows that by the time he reaches court, it's gonna be four or five years from when they have suspended him. And that effectively is a complete destruction of a GP's career. Many of his patients now have found other doctors, well, all of them will have, and many of those who were elderly and who had had a long relationship with him have now passed away. This has a real adverse effect uh, on him. He just will never, real, in, real, in reality, be able to practice medicine again.
0: Well, as I was alluding to earlier, you know, in, in, in wasn't, it wasn't so long ago in Australia when real disputes and real complaints were, were all addressed by our, our hierarchy of courts. You know, they'd start in the magistrates and go all the way up to the High Court if necessary. But now, in our lifetime, we've seen this burgeoning of all these quasi-judicial bodies that have all sorts of powers, and as you say, are not answerable to
2: anyone. That's right. There is obviously a place for proper regulation of the practice of medicine. We want to make sure our doctors are safe when they practice medicine, well qualified, And in that respect, there are many good things that are done by regulatory bodies. The danger comes when they are given powers beyond what regulators should be given and when those powers are so broadly defined that they really can be used to go after and pursue doctors for things that have no real proximate connection to their practice of medicine.
0: Well, we wish, we wish Dr Jareth Cock well. I, I hope he is able to uh, pivot into a new career and maintain his sanity against this, uh, in, this, this incredibly hostile bureaucracy. Good news is Lyle Shelton has won his case. His blog posts remain up and he hasn't been penalized beyond the $200,000 that uh, he had to crowdfund and your time as well. Thank you for that, John. So the war
2: goes on, who's winning? Fred, we see a society that's increasingly hostile, particularly to people of faith, which is who I'm concerned about. We want to stand up for religious freedom because by extension it practices the freedom of thought, speech, expression, association. And while we see a society which is increasingly starting to clamp down on these things and become authoritarian, we still live in a great country We have a great framework and fabric of law that allows us to take action when there's been overreach, when there's been overstep, and we have courts that can make great decisions in this regard, particularly as we see with Lyle, also with other cases that we have won. The courts are there to make sure that laws are interpreted well and that we can preserve our freedoms. so it's important to use those avenues that are available to us and be thankful that we don't live in China where we'd have none of these kinds of avenues of recourse.
0: Yeah, and I've got to add, you don't even need to be Christian to be uh, defending freedom of speech, although it seems to be Christians who are doing most of it at the moment. John Steenhoff, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Fred, a pleasure to be with you. That's John Steenhoff of the Human Rights Law Alliance. Well, let's cross now to my United States correspondent, Josh Hammer, the senior editor at large at Newsweek magazine, host of the wonderful Josh Hammer podcast, and also a research fellow at the Edmund Burke Foundation, a think tank that emphasises the important link between nationalism and conservatism. I expect Josh will have plenty to say about American nationalism now because... To be frank, there isn't much of it coming out of the White House. While President Joe Biden is sending tens of billions of dollars to, the war, to fight the war in Ukraine, the Americans who really need that money and the government's help, the survivors of the fires on Maui in Hawaii, some of these people are dealing with the unbearable trauma of having lost kids or loved ones in an inferno. They're getting almost nothing. Biden is due to land in Maui today to console the survivors, but for all we know, his minders managed to shuffle him onto Air Force One by telling him he's going to Hawaii to sit on a beach and eat chocolate chip ice cream. Let's bring in Josh to see if any good can come of this. Josh, welcome back to the show.
3: Fred, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure.
0: Josh, let's start with how this fire started on Maui last week. The Hawaiian state government passed a law in 2015 saying that all electricity in the state needs to be generated by renewable energy in 2045, by 2045. Naturally, for the past eight years, this has put a lot of pressure on Hawaiian electric to shift its focus away from what it would normally do, which is attend to the maintenance of its existing wire system. Now, Josh, did this have anything to do with how the fire started on Maui?
3: Well, it's impossible to know, obviously, but I mean, we can certainly speculate that it possibly has something to do with it. Something else that probably has something to do with it it was the fact that the power lines in Hawaii, they had, the, the, the energy companies there had, had plenty of notice as to this hurricane, these gale force winds that were there. And they they made the decision to not de-energize the power lines. They kept the power lines freely flowing, basically up until the moment of absolute peril. Some of those energy companies are being sued in a private litigation capacity as well right now. But certainly, the you can't discount the woke stuff. I mean, what you just mentioned there, there's also this video that's gone viral, at least in American conservative Social media. I'm not sure if it's made all the way there to Australia, but there's there's this ridiculous video of of the man who I I'm can't remember his exact title. He is like the the Maui County Public Commissioner or something like that. And I it was I think it was Charlie Kirk of Turning Point who found this video of him talking on and on about how how water is kind of like a quasi-deity, is kind of a quasi-godlike figure in in, in ancient Hawaiian mythology, and therefore the teaching is to conserve water, it's not to use it. And now, Fred, as we tragically know, the authorities there, you know, to even holding aside what I just mentioned about kind of the, the follies of the of the energy company, the power lines, we also know that authorities did not deploy water anywhere near on time enough. So we obviously have to wonder whether or not this this attitude had anything to do with it. I think it strikes many of us that it probably had at least something to do with it. So there's a lot of lot of questions here. Uh, it's also just a. It's a general. It's it's just a horrible tragedy. Just in general, it's it's a grave humanitarian disaster. Over a hundred people dying in a fire. Just not the kind of thing that happens in America. Thank God on a regular basis. I mean, one of my very best friends, his brother, was actually living in this town. He lost everything. I mean, he he was he managed to save his graduation diploma, some of his most cherished personal items. His, his cello. He's a musician. But he, he lost his whole house. I mean, I mean, I, I, and it's just your heart just grieves, honestly.
0: Yeah, the 114 people died. Is the last I, last count that I saw, uh, and an enormous amount of property damage. It's interesting you bring up that that sort of reverence for you know local indigenous knowledge about water or whatever it is. These are just all signs of the way we are abandoning the sophistication and science that we have built up over all these years to make the world, make our world a safe place. But the other, the other aspect of that is this continuing relentless uh, focus on climate change. Now, there's been a lot of commentary attributing this tragedy to, the, to actual climate change. Here's an example, a prime example, from climatologist Michael Mann. Now, he's the guy most viewers will remember uh, for being responsible for the famous hockey stick graph in the 2006 film, An Inconvenient Truth. Let's have a listen to Michael Mann.
4: And that drought is part of the climate story here as well. As we see more and more high pressure in the summer over this region of the planet, uh, we see less rainfall. Uh, hotter temperatures mean more evaporation of what soil moisture there is. And so we see this epic drought. Uh, the winds uh, did sort of provide the spark in a sense. Uh, the downed power lines provided the spark. but. What allowed these fires to spread so quickly, uh, to become so damaging was in substantial part, the huge amount of fuel there was in the form of dry materials, the tinderbox conditions uh, that are, are, you know, are, are there today. All of those things have been impacted by climate change. So we can't tell this story without talking about the climate crisis.
0: Josh, we have the same phenomenon here in Australia. We are not allowed to clear the fuel from the ground in the bush anymore, and as a result, we are almost every summer these days, we are inundated with these massive, uh, really intense um, wildfires. Is it the same case? I mean, Michael Mann is saying, oh, there's too much fuel on the ground. Well, that's thanks to you, mate, because greenies won't let us clear the fuel from the ground.
3: You know, Fred, climate change has become the single monolithic answer to every problem in the mind of the leftist. It has become, as a friend of mine said, the the dog-eat-my-homework excuse. It is the catch-all phrase that they deploy when they choose to exculpate themselves, to exculpate their allies, and to choose to just try to not take the blame, to try to obfuscate, try to deflect. No, no matter what the situation calls for, if they don't want to answer the question directly or address what has actually happened in, in direct frank terms which happens a lot they will just invoke this ever looming specter of of climate change i mean Yeah, No matter what it is, I mean, truly, I mean, whether it's uh, this horrific wildfire, whether it's this this hurricane that is that is now hitting California, Baja, California, might even get up to Las Vegas. Very rare for a hurricane to be on the Pacific coast of America as opposed to to the Atlantic coast. So you hear climate change. Then, you know, we had these terrible wildfires in Canada earlier this summer where you saw these images of New York City covered in like this thick orange smoke. Then they said climate change. Each and every time it is climate change. You know, Fred, I live here in Florida, and I go for many walks on the beach, and I can tell you that that the ocean water here genuinely has been quite warm this summer. Sometimes it's felt like a bathtub, but here's the but. There's been any number of articles, the Washington Post, New York Times, all the usual actors here, they'll always say climate change, climate change, climate change. But, you know, it, it turns out that if you go back a year and a half, I think it was January 2022, there was a volcano in the South Pacific, and I'm gonna butcher the name if I try to pronounce it. It's like the Hunga Tunga. It's closer to your neck of the woods, frankly, actually. And it, it, it was this unprecedented volcanic eruption. It was one of the largest volcanic eruptions, I, I think, in decades. And at the time, scientists and climatologists predicted that the, that so much water vapor was sent into the stratosphere, that like global temperatures, oceanic and atmospheric temperatures over the next year could rise by as much as one and a half degrees Celsius on average. Average. So, you know, these people are just flipping out. Again, they always come back to this one talking point the facts be damned, unfortunately.
0: Well, yeah, I've got to say that uh, when the climate change mantra fails, then they resort to calling us racists. That's how much sense they make. Now, um, let's look at The Washington Post, a well known left wing newspaper, very sympathetic to the Democrats. Even The Washington Post is having a go at Biden over this. Uh, Here's a quote from The Post. As the death toll was escalating towards the triple digits, his, Biden's, muted public approach stood in sharp contrast to his long-standing image of an empathetic leader, I'd probably dispute that, but anyway, the post went on and offered critics a fresh angle to attack him politically. Now, Josh, we know the left-wing media well enough to know that this kind of statement isn't made accidentally. This is part of a wider agenda. Do you think the left-wing media has decided that Joe is now too old and frail to run for president again in 2024? And if so, which Democrat alternative do you think we could uh, seek it up?
3: Well, I have no doubt that there are many left-wing elites, both in the media and outside the media, who would prefer that Joe Biden go home to his basement in Wilmington, Delaware, and kind of just rot away there in his palpable senility uh, you know and, and there's any number of other examples of this by the way it's not it's not just the washington post here michelle goldberg the the prominent progressive columnist for the new york times has had any number of columns over the past six months calling attention to to joe biden's age to his diminished mental capacity to the various scandals plaguing his addle-brained crack addict son hunter biden i mean there's been any number of other examples out there too even cnn has gone into the game a little bit here and, you know, Fred, going back to, to January, people tend to forget this. Even here in America, they forget it. You know, there's a lot of attention on, on Donald Trump's four indictments. But, you know, Joe Biden himself had 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 and has his own classified documents retention scandal. And, you know, is that this Chinese Communist Party funded Penn Biden Center for Global Diplomacy or some kind of, you know, amorphous sounding, you know, feel goody think tank thing. And they found these classified documents. And I'd say all that because at the time when this happened back in January, my interpretation of those events was that the timing for this being exposed then was that you probably did have various actors in the DOJ and the deep state and so forth trying to get Biden to step aside before he formally reannounced for president. The problem is that now that he's announced, now that folks like RFK are his closest challenger, polling you know somewhere around fifteen percent, not particularly close to put it mildly here. And I just don't see it. I mean, I'm not sure I'll say it. I just don't see that Biden stepping aside at this point pending, obviously, hospitalization, death, something like that, that no one in the right mind should, should obviously hope for. We hope that doesn't happen. So I so I just don't see it happening pending something like that. I think I, I think it's too far into the game at this point. And I think Democrats at this point are probably just kind of stuck with him, whether they want him or not. But I have no doubt that there are various elites, individuals in the media and outside who would prefer that he go away and prefer they get kind of a younger, shinier object like a Kamala Harris, a Gavin Newsom or, dare I say, perhaps even a Michelle Obama.
0: Yeah, I've heard Michelle Obama, uh, M- Michelle Obama's name bandied about, and she's certainly, you know, the freshest and youngest, but uh, she doesn't carry a lot of substance as far as I can see. Well, let's, let's I mean, that's a disturbing <laughs> observation that you've made there, Josh, that uh, uh, the, the most likely outcome will be that uh, Biden is going to run again and be the leading contender for the Democrats. That's, It's pretty frightening for us even down here in Australia. Well, let's turn to who's going to be running against him. Uh, Since his latest indictment under racketeering laws, racketeering laws in Georgia, Donald Trump's support has grown as far as I can see, to 62% among Republican voters. Now, Josh, there's obviously a significant sympathy element in this. People want to show support for Trump because he is being outrageously persecuted and targeted by the Washington establishment. But here's the thing, Josh, that's not the way to run politics. You don't vote for someone just because you feel sorry for them, do you?
3: Right, So uh, I've been saying this for a very long time, Fred, actually over a year now. In fact, going back to the, the the raid in Mar-a-Lago, this raid heard around the world, the pre-dawn raid, it was over a year ago now. It was early August 2022. And I, I, I had a column at the time utterly condemning the raid. But one of my conclusions, one of my takeaways was that the fact that Donald Trump's standing in the you know, this is before anyone announced that they were running, but his rise in the standing of the hypothetical 2024 polling combined with the boost in fundraising to his coffers and his super PAC, MAGA Inc., and so forth, it was so clearly and utterly predictable in from my perspective that to me it seemed clear that one of the many reasons for that raid going back over a year ago to say nothing of these indictments – was for the deep state, the DOJ, and all the various nefarious actors deep in the heart of Washington, D.C. to try to ensure that Donald Trump would be the 2024 nominee because at least from my perspective and based on most polling that I have seen, he is the least likely to defeat Joe Biden in, in a general election matchup, notwithstanding the fact that Joe Biden is obviously a, a remarkably weak incumbent himself with God knows how much baggage and you know all the things that we could possibly say ab- about Joe Biden. So I I have no doubt whatsoever that that has been a major reason that Trump's standing in the polls has stayed this high. In fact, if you go back to the first indictment, Alvin Bragg in in New York City back in late March, early April, that was really the time when Trump's lead went from, you know, call it 12 to 15 points to something much bigger than that. You know, 25 points. And then it's only continued in some polls, depending on the polling. To just get bigger and bigger, so I, I have absolutely no doubt that that is a huge part of it. But to your other point, no, I mean that that clearly is not the end all, be all. I, I mean this is a political persecution. It, it it is lawfare. It is a sprawling kind of legal jihad, you might will against. Donald Trump and you know all they say about the about Trump is true. They've been trying to get him since before he was president going back to 2016 and the and and the the FISA warrant with Carter Page and the surveillance. I mean, they've tried to get this guy five ways from Sunday. Uh, Trump by the way does not always do the best to to avoid helping his enemies, he oftentimes will help his enemies uh, in, in ways that, that I would find uh, childish, perhaps, uh, myopic, perhaps, at worst. But no, ultimately, I mean, you're trying to choose someone who is best positioned to defeat Joe Biden and then implement the agenda that America needs to ultimately save the country. So, I, I mean, this rally around the flag effect, this sympathy can only go so far, I think.
0: Yeah, we'll get to uh, who might be a better candidate in a sec, but I'd, I'd really like you to explain what's going on here. I mean, from, from Australia, and especially from um, among viewers of ADHTV, I mean, we do see Trump as a very effective president. I mean, if there is this widespread support among Republicans that is then just going to suddenly disappear when the actual presidential election turns around, How does that happen? How do you explain that, Josh? Where do where does all that support go from, you know, massive support among Republicans to then, oh, he'll probably lose against Biden? I don't don't see how it one translates to the other.
3: Well, most Republicans obviously would vote for Donald Trump. I mean, I mean, there's no doubt about that. But you do have some some soft Republicans at the margin who At this point, you know, after all the years of the persecution after January 6th, after this, after that, after four criminal indictments, you know, his support among Republicans is definitely not what it once was. Back in 2016, I I think he won like 93 to 94 percent of Republicans or something like that. I, I would be pretty surprised if he is a nominee in 24, if that number were above I don't know I'm, I'm totally speculating here but call it 88 percent which you know on the margins like actually matters right i mean i mean uh, that five six percent margin of, of losing your own party's voters after all that he's been through that really does matter the other thing to bear in mind is back in 2016 when trump defeated hillary clinton part of the reason that he won that election of course there were many reasons but part of the reason was that hillary clinton was just a, a historically and catastrophically unpopular nominee and in fact donald trump wiped the floor with her with with independent voters. But if you look at the polling in America now, when it comes to a hypothetical Trump-Biden rematch next fall, pretty much all the polling that I've seen shows that Trump would lose independent voters to Joe Biden. So you combine all of that, it starts to look really dicey. The the Electoral College math starts to look very dicey. And then you kind of exacerbate that with the fact that in many of kind of the the key swing states uh, in America, there are relatively few states at this point that really do decide the Electoral College. Trump has alienated fellow Republicans in a lot of those states. Georgia is probably the best example of them all, where his fourth indictment is. So he's alienated the governor there, Brian Kemp, the governor, who's very popular there. He has an approval rating in Georgia of like plus 20, plus 25 points. Kemp is clearly now turning against Trump. His lieutenant governor might even testify against Trump at his trial, possibly also true for the secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger. or so there's a lot of data points out there that suggest that he could be in for some trouble if he is the general election nominee.
0: Yeah, well said. Well, let's talk about Ron DeSantis now. Uh, he is your governor, because you live in Florida. Um, and he is, naturally, the, the second name that, uh, that springs to mind for us in Australia. And he's, he's been incredibly impressive for the, at least the last four years. But his popularity has declined steadily. Josh, where is Ron DeSantis going wrong?
3: So look, Fred, I've been a fairly unabashed supporter of Ron DeSantis. I was very kind of transparent with my audience and my column and my and my own podcast that, that if he were to announce, I said this way before he announced, then I would have a very hard time not supporting him. I, I moved to Florida due in large part to his policies. I personally benefit from his amazing leadership and policies every single day. And um, you know, sh- sure enough, I, w- I was hoping you know for for a much closer gap, certainly between Trump and his. I mean, Trump was was always going to be the favorite. There's no doubt about that. I mean, it's very unique I- in American history, Fred, to have a former president then run for a second non-consecutive term. It's only been done successfully once before. It was Grover Cleveland in the late 1800s, the 1890s or so. So just a very, very rare phenomenon. So Trump was was always going to be the favorite. But it's true. Many of us were hoping and expecting that DeSantis' national numbers would be, would, would be a lot tighter. We'll see what happens. Look, I mean, it's still very early. Obviously, we have our first debate coming up this Wednesday. Trump's not going to be there. This is a golden, perfect opportunity for Ron DeSantis to kind of get up there to fend off some of these attack dogs like like Vivek Ramaswamy, like Chris Christie. And ultimately, Fred, you know, part of the thing that I've come to kind of realize over the past few months, it's not just the policy. You know, I, I mean, I'm a policy guy. I'm a substance guy. You're a substance guy. Voters, especially for president, really want more than that. I mean, to be clear, they care about policy, obviously, but they want you – to inspire them. They want you to kind of give them hope in somewhat of more of a poetic narrative version as opposed to kind of a recitation of bullet points, kind of like a 45-point plan or whatnot. And that is kind of, I think, what many of us have, have been urging Governor Sanders to do. Again, it's not too late. There is many time left. I mean, we're still like five months from the Iowa caucuses. So, I mean, there's like five months now until the first votes are cast. Who knows what will happen with Donald Trump? Apparently, he's got to turn himself in to Fonnie Wilson, the DA in Fulton County, Georgia. I mean, you know, he's going to have to start fending himself off legally in all these jurisdictions. Uh, His super PAC is the coffers running dry, the legal bills. I mean, there's still, there's still a lot of, of, of game left to be played here, but certainly I think many of us, to your point, were hoping and expecting that thus far would have been a little smoother sailing for the Florida governor.
0: Yeah, it, you seem to be saying that uh, Ron DeSantis isn't charismatic enough, uh, and that's a fair point. I mean, this is American politics and it's presidential politics we're talking about here. The key, the key question then, Josh, is can Ron do it? Can he suddenly become charismatic?
3: Uh, look I mean uh, I, I've spent a, a decent amount of time with with Governor DeSantis in various settings, both both public and private. I mean I mean I have seen a, a, a side of him that that is I mean, look—is he Donald Trump's personality? No. I mean, am I Don? No. I mean, no one is. I mean, like Donald Trump is is a truly kind of unique figure in that respect. This is a man who built a global empire, who was firing people on the. I mean, you you, you just can't try to try to match that. So you're you're quite literally never going to be able to out Trump Trump. You know, on the other hand, I mean, do I think that Ron DeSantis like like has the personality or kind of the personal affectations or winsomeness in, in a way that is clearly superior to other candidates, folks like, you know, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, people like, yeah, I I, I absolutely do. So, you know, we, we've we seen some glimmers of that over, over over the past few weeks there. I think the more that he's going to get exposed to voters via both his campaign and his very well-funded super PAC, never back down. You know, the more voters, the more kind of small events in Iowa and New Hampshire that he's in front of, that definitely does bode well. But... You know, again, I, I, what Trump did in 2016, among the things that he, that he did correctly, was he had an incredibly simple message, make America great again. The, the message truly did resonate. You know, DeSantis' campaign slogan is, is the great American comeback. Um, I, I'm still waiting to try to figure out exactly what that means I mean I, I've seen a, I've seen an economic game plan I, I obviously I, everyone knows he's like beyond rock solid he's the best in the business when it gets to kind of the culture war issues but you know tying it back to that overarching narrative great American comeback, how will you inspire people to believe and be a part of the great American comeback? It's, it's the narrative kind of storytelling element that I think I'm tuned into the most right now.
0: Yeah, I think the best slogan that uh, Ron DeSantis ever came up with was, uh, Florida is where woke goes to die. I've never forgotten that one. And it's a really, you know, it's a fight. They're fighting words. And that's what, uh, that's what us conservatives are looking for at the moment. Vivek Ramaswamy, you mentioned him. He's now tied at around 10% of the Republican vote with Ron DeSantis. Now, he's the biotech multi-millionaire who is promising to pardon Trump if he's elected. But more importantly, Josh, this is his key promise, in my opinion. He's promised to sack 75% of the bureaucracy in his first term of, of presidency. Does that sort of promise cut through, uh, you know, even more effectively than anything Ron DeSantis has said?
3: Fred, I, I- I have very strong thoughts on Vivek Ramaswamy in part because I have had both personal and professional dealings with Vivek Ramaswamy but well before he announced for president of the United States. I think that Vivek Ramaswamy is a fraud, a swindler, a con artist, and someone whose opinion should not be taken even remotely seriously because he does not believe the words that he is saying. This is someone who – in my view, this is someone who is kind of like, like a chat GPT bot, someone who had computer programmers feed him a list of pre-approved talking points. I mean he, he's been told what conservative voters – Apparently want to hear, and he says it. But he flips all the time. I mean, he's had multiple opinions on on whether he would recognize Juneteenth as a federal holiday just over the past few months. He he invariably also kind of you know the computer program slips, and he in in, in, in uh, invariably says kind of crazy stuff as well. I mean, he was on Alex Stein's Blaze TV podcast in, in the not so distant past when he said. You know, he was openly speculating that 9-11 might have been an inside job. I mean, is 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 this like an Alex Jones show or is this really the kind of guy that you want to be president of the United States? You know, Vivek Ramaswamy was a former George Soros fellow. He has not been able to scrub that from from the website. It's literally still up to this day. You can you can Google it. It's 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 right there. He was co-investing with Chinese Communist Party backed investment funds as recently as 2019 to 2020. He now calls himself a China hawk. Color me deeply skeptical of that. He he actually had a tweet as recently as 2021 or maybe even 2022 praising George Soros for his views on something COVID lockdown related. Now, again, uh, he is saying a lot of nice things, but I think the voters really need to kind of ask very carefully as to whether he's going to be saying the same thing tomorrow. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, there is really nothing that Vivek Ramaswamy believes other than in Vivek Ramaswamy himself. He is an egomaniac, the likes of which I have very rarely encountered in my entire life.
0: Well said. Um, I'm, we, we love having you on, Josh, because you tell it the way you really think it. Thanks for that. Now, the only, only thing left to talk about now is should Trump win the nomination? How will his campaign pan out? I mean, you mentioned earlier how he won in 2016 because uh, Hillary Clinton was such an awfully unpopular woman. How, has, are there any aces up Trump's sleeve to pull this off in, in uh, 2024?
3: Hey, look, he could. I mean, like you can't discount the possibility. I think it's a low possibility. I, I, I will just be very candid here. I think that Donald Trump is overwhelmingly more likely than not to lose this time or this time around. Now, to be clear, everyone said that in 2016, too. So many of his defenders say, oh, you said the same thing eight years ago. And it's true. But a lot has changed, as I kind of was getting at earlier when it comes to independent. V- voters, you know, when it comes to many of these swing states, uh, Georgia, Arizona, w- where Trump has alienated a lot of the Republican voters in many of these key swing states that he will need. Obviously, January 6th turned off a lot of softer Republicans, Republican leaning independents, these four criminal indictments. And also, y- you know, God bless him. He's he's in his late 70s, clearly does not have the energy that that he once had. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just just He's just older. He's just older. And, you know, his message is also just, frankly, just way off in many ways compared to what it was. In in 2015, 2016, you know, it took him a few months to kind of get onto the whole MAGA thing, but once he landed on that, he found his footing. You know, he was the guy who was going to challenge Republican orthodoxy in a very healthy way on issues like trade, immigration, foreign policy, even really kind of uh, entitlement spending, frankly, Medicare. So he really found his issues. And this time around, I couldn't tell you what those Donald Trump 2024 issues are. I mean, every time I go to his Truth Social, which is admittedly not that frequent, or anytime I hear him in the news, You know, he's talking about his own troubles, the witch hunt, the this. I I, I mean, he's going after his own former people like Kelly McEnany. I mean, what is this? I mean, like, are we are we we trying to do like a vanity project here? Are we talking about running for president of the United States, the most important position on the world and a country that desperately needs sound and prudent leadership? So I color me not an optimist when it comes to Donald Trump's prospective 2024 general election chances. There's always a chance, obviously, Joe Biden of course you know could 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 fall gravely ill before then it's over a year from now the man is very clearly not in good health but you you factor all of what i said and then you kind of also understand the fact that all of the all of the covid era changes to election law that the democrats uh, very opportunistically took advantage of in 2020 very little of that has been rolled back in a way that structurally disadvantages republicans Fred, sometimes I start to wonder whether or not any Republican, even someone as polished on paper as Ron DeSantis, could actually defeat Joe Biden given the election law status quo, given the state of the media and all of that. Uh, So I I hate to sound so pessimistic and blackpilled here, um, but I, I, I am not optimistic if Donald Trump is the nominee. Obviously, I could be wrong. And I should clarify. I hope that I would be wrong, because if Trump is the nominee, just to be very clear here, I've said this publicly before, I I would have every intention to vote for him.
0: That's a frightening uh, analysis there, Josh. Uh, It it looks like it's going to be uh, an election campaign argued over over whether or not uh, Donald Trump is innocent, and whether or not Joe Biden is the most corrupt president in American history at a time when election procedures are highly dubious and the media is swinging, uh, you know, habitually towards the Democrats. Just at a, also at a time when the world needs great leadership from the United States. So anyway, we will get you back as a, in the lead up to the uh, election, Josh, because we love your, uh, your analysis. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Fred. That's Josh Hammer, podcaster par excellence, writer and senior editor at large for Newsweek magazine. And just before I go, did you see the comments from senior ABC journalist Stan Grant from the Canberra Writers Festival on the weekend? During a panel discussion with fellow ABC lovey Louise Milligan, he said how disillusioned he was with the media, especially the show he used to host, Q&A. Quote, you go on Q&A and the first thing you do is you introduce a panel that have more often than not been picked because they have conflict rather than seeking to find connection. Then you say, go on social media, basically form your lynch mob, hit the person you hate and pile on. I can't do that anymore. And I don't think that is what you want from our media. I think we are failing you and we must find a better way of doing it. Well, when Stan Grant walked out of his gig as Q&A host in May, Citing the pain of supposedly racist attacks against him as the cause, I emailed the media relations people at the ABC asking politely if he would continue to remain on full pay while he took leave. I received no reply. So a couple of weeks ago, I tried again. And this time, Sally Jackson, the ABC's communications lead replied tersely, quote, We don't have any comment to make on Stan Grant's leave." In other words, none of your business, taxpayer. Oh, And shut up and pay your taxes, though. Can we deduce from that that Grant is still on full pay? And if so, did we just pay him to attend the Canberra Writers' Festival to tell us that he was not doing a very good job? Q&A? Nice work if you can get it. One of the loudest applauses at CPAC on the weekend was when Senator Pauline Hanson said of the ABC, if it was my choice I'd just shut the place down. You'd have to be dead set bonkers to disagree. Well that's all from me tonight, thanks for watching. If you want to see more ADH content have a look around our website or our app for some of the best commentary in the nation from people like Alan Jones, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, Dave Pellow, and more. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there is no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you next Monday at 7 p.m. Good night.